Good morning. What we're doing, that was poor. Let's try that again. Good morning. Okay, you did much better the second go around here. I'd love for you to take your Bibles now and uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And the reason why we're pausing today in our series in the Psalms is that today across the world is Reformation Sunday. And this is a Sunday that is devoted once a year where churches worldwide pause to consider how, in essence, the gospel is retrieved from a sense of forgottenness. And what we want to do is to be able to explore two verses that tie directly in to Reformation Sunday. And it's found in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We could have gone to other passages, particularly in Romans 4, but uh, this should be succinct and allow us to be able to understand the significance of what it means to be able to experience authentic salvation uh, found in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. So if you're turning in your Bibles, we're at Romans 5, Newer Testament, verses 1 and 2. And here now we find these words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's two verses this morning as we pause and we look to our Lord together in prayer. And our Father, what we want to do now is we are opening up your words to open our minds, our hearts, our souls to what you want to teach us. We've done this in the earlier service, now in the later service, those in this building, for those live streaming at this moment or in the hours or the days to come, we praise you. We're asking that in a very powerful way you meet us at our point of need, because when we explore these verses, we are probing the depths and the riches of what a relationship with you entails. What does it mean to be saved? What it means, what does it mean, in fact, to be justified? So, Father, what we're asking now is for an extraordinary biblical wisdom Wisdom that comes from above, that allows for it to get so settled in our minds and our hearts that we are able to interpret these words accurately, apply them effectively, share them willingly with those who need to understand the significance of what these two verses communicate. Important words, important truths. We thank you for what you've revealed. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. Come here again now, Father, to see Jesus, 
him only. I'm praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the picture that appears on the screen behind me. This is the picture of the Wittenberg door. Extraordinary story is represented by that setting where in 1517, Martin Luther attached his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg, the castle door. It set all of Europe ablaze as people began to rethink what salvation entails. It caught everybody's attention, and it didn't take long for it to make its way across all of Europe. It's fascinating to me, God and his sovereignty, how he works things out. And because in the prior century, God had ordained the Gutenberg Press to come into existence in the 1440s. And what that would allow for is for the printed word of God now to be distributed. This is no accident in time. This is an appointment with time that the press preceded the 95 theses being attached to that door. Now, when pamphlets went out, tracts, evangelistic tracts, explaining the essence of salvation, people now had a capacity to begin to think through the serious ramifications of what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Now, what Reformation Sunday does... And our Lutheran friends would be quick to, very, to point this out to us. Is that as Luther penned his thoughts, they would have been penned in Latin. And there is a particular word in Latin, sola, which so many that have studied this subject understand very well as how it relates. Because there is what is known as the five solas. Grace alone, gratia sola, faith alone, fide sola, Christ alone, Christa sola, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. These are the five solas. And they have tremendous bearing, you see, upon our understanding of the exclusivity of what is being communicated here in the verses that we're exploring this morning. Why the Wittenberg door carries such symbolic significance to this very day. It's a visual statement of what the purity of salvation entails. What I want to do with you, with just two verses this morning, as we, as we break from our series in the Psalms, is to extract four phrases that are found in these two verses that can have direct bearing upon our understanding of salvation 
and our ability to communicate the essence of what salvation is all about to people who, who might be grappling with such questions as, how good is good enough to be acceptable before God? How good do I have to be? What more good works might be needed? Does God grade on a curve? Or does he use an absolute standard? Well, no. You're asking great questions, as you do every Sunday. And so what we want to do now is to explore those questions and be able to pinpoint biblically-based answers to what's being provided here. And we're going to begin now by looking very carefully at this first of the four phrases that now appears on the screen. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and we'll camp on that phrase to start with, okay? Therefore. When Paul uses therefore, he's using a form of logic where he continues to build one argument after another. There are a number of therefores found throughout the book of Romans. It's built upon a logical, biblically oriented system by which you and I would be able to understand the essence of what truth is all about. Now when he uses therefore, he is linking what he is about to write to the prior chapters of 3 and 4, which go in essence and, and, and offer illustration of what it means to be justified by faith. What he goes to, in fact, Genesis chapter 15 as an illustration, using Abram as his primary subject, to be able to talk about one who in the Old Testament was justified by faith. So now, let's begin to develop this a little further. Therefore, you're dealing with what has been previously taught. The first two and a half chapters deals with humanity's rebellion against God. The second half of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 deals with God's work of redemption through Christ. Therefore, since we have been at this point, he's addressing believers. He's equipping the believer to have a deeper, richer understanding of what the essence of salvation is all about. But now notice, you've gotten to the word justified. How do we understand this word? What you and I have got to be able to understand at the very beginning is that to be justified means that we have been declared righteous by God. It is not possible to become more justified tomorrow than you are today. For you see, it is an act of God. It is a declaration. One might call it a forensic word. Lawyers understand that. A legal word. Justified means that we are declared righteous. You and I were not found righteous. Highlander came into this world physically alive but spiritually dead, you see. I cannot achieve justification before God. I cannot justify myself before God. Thus, it's going to have to be an act of God, not a work 
of your senior pastor. Justified means that we are declared righteous. We were not found righteous. But furthermore, justified means we are declared righteous, not made righteous. You and I are not made righteous so that God can make us acceptable. Thus, again, this is a legal act. It is a forensic term. It is a formal declaration. Legally speaking now, even though he knows that we are sinners by nature, the sinless one died for the sinful ones. And he looks at us through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's where justice and grace find their meeting point, you see. It's interesting that the kyle, the Greek word for, for justification here, it's rooted also in the same term as is righteousness. Now, as I've been thinking about this word, my, my mind went back to what Dr. Roy Gustafson offered in terms of what I think is probably one of the finest illustrations of justification that I have ever heard. It seems that there was this man in England who put his Rolls Royce on a boat and went across to the continent to go on holiday. And while he was driving around in Europe, something, well, something went wrong with the motor of the car. And so he sent word back to Rolls Royce in England asking, was saying, I'm having trouble with my car. What do you suggest I do? Well, the Rolls Royce people flew a mechanic over. The mechanic repaired the car, flew back, you see, to England, left the man to continue his holiday. And, well, the man, of course, is wondering, as you would think, how much is this going to cost me? Well, when he got back to England, he wrote and he communicated via letter, how much do I owe? And he received this response from the Rolls Royce office. Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything has ever gone wrong with a Rolls Royce. <laughs> now, people, that's justification. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is no record in the files that you're to absorb the penalty of sin. Not there. Because the penalty for sin has already been paid at the cross of Jesus Christ. And the record does not have unsaved found in it if you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior. Not found righteous by God, not made righteous by God, no. You are declared righteous by God. It's a forensic word, it's a legal term, it's a judicial word. And of course, Paul, using the therefore, he's building off of what he had already covered in a prior chapter, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So now, you're up to that word justified. Since therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, what we need to do at this point is to begin to think very seriously about how this relates to, say, Reformation Sunday. Look at the scene that appears on the screen. Well, now, four years later, after Luther penned and pinned his 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg, what you will find is that there will be a gathering of people, leaders throughout Europe, convened. The word has gotten out because God, not accidentally, but through appointment, had already established the Gutenberg Press by means of which now communication could go forward in written form. And now the whole teachings of justification by faith are going forward. Well, now, the religious authorities are up in arms, you see, because they've been some teaching something different, not Scripture. So what you see here now in this uh, lowercase heading, Luther faces Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms in April 1521, four years later now, where he's being called on the carpet to have to defend what it is that he's communicating, and he's communicating scriptural truths. Here I stand. I can do no other. He would courageously communicate because when one comes under the authority of God's word and understands the stamp of approval that God the Father has given to Christ the Son who died on the cross three days later being raised from the grave, you can march through life with such security such courage to face the issues of the hour. And that's exactly why, why Luther could do what he was doing at that time because he knew that God in his uppercase authority had established justification by faith as the means by which you and I would be able to understand the essence, you see, of salvation. This is powerful stuff. Think Rose Royce. Think Luther most importantly, think justification by faith. But you're still in that first phrase, aren't you? Therefore, since we have been, he's talking believers now, justified, declared righteous by God, not found righteous by God, not made righteous by God, forensic, declared righteous by God. And you say, but Gary, how? And the answer is, by faith, you see. Well, now, we need to develop that idea a little further, don't we? Hmm. So, let's embrace this idea to start with. The value of our faith is determined by the object of our faith. Let me say it again. The value of our faith is determined by the object of our faith. 
Now, for the sake of the analogy, let's say that it's January, and you've got this wonderful idea of going ice skating. And visiting this weekend is somebody who's just come up from the Caribbean. Well, you strap on the skates and you're about to head out on the water. Their idea of water is different than your idea of water in January. And so they're standing there watching very timidly as you strap on the skates and you just go right out on the ice. Now, what captures my attention at this point is this. The value of faith is found in the object of faith. In that case, the object of faith was the ice. You and I know that in January, it's sustainable. The challenge is, is that in this world, people are putting faith in unsustainable objects hoping to make their way through life. But this is sustainable. And the thing about Jesus Christ, by being raised from the grave, this is credible and unchangeable. Well now, this person's all excited because they are beginning to grasp the idea that the value of your faith is found in the object of your faith and that ice is sustainable. Oh, they go out on the ice with you rather timidly at first and then they gain greater and greater degrees of confidence as the minutes go by. This is so true of people who come to saving faith. At first, they're beginning to wrestle with is this really sustainable? And then as time goes on, they realize, God's holding me up. You are held up in salvation, not based upon your work, but based upon Christ's work. You see, this is good stuff. So your friend goes back to the Caribbean, so excited, tells family members, because the return trip is going to be happening in April. And they return in April, and they can't wait to strap on the skates. And as they strap on the skates, they're saying, let's go back out to the pond. And you're looking rather skeptically at this point because you know the value of your faith is determined by the object of your faith. But in this particular case now in April, um, the object's not necessarily going to be um, sustainable. And so they've got all this faith and they just leap out on on the ice and they go right through, you see. Because faith is not determined by sincerity. One can be very sincere and yet very wrong. Even in religious terms. One can also be very fervent about their faith. And one can be very fervent religiously and still be very wrong. Because the veil of your faith is determined by the object of your faith. Is what I am putting my faith in, in whom I'm placing my faith in, sustainable? And furthermore, 
unchangeable. I can only think of one, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who at the burning bush would be able to say, I am, not I was. You see, when you're thinking ice in April, you're thinking about the was. And too many people are putting their faith in changeable, unsustainable objects and then hoping somehow, some way, that this will get them through. And it doesn't. But the one who understands what this first phrase is all about grasps the significance of this. Now, Luther had to be able to communicate this effectively. I don't know if he talked about ice and other such things at Vims. Well, along comes Ossie Spro in his book, Faith Alone, and he offers some additional help to understand this subject because at this particular point in time, uh, the primary religious organization was Roman Catholicism tied directly uh, to the Roman emperor. And so all of this is wedded together. And what, what Luther had to do is to begin to make distinctions between what the Bible teaches and what things have been taught religiously, where people could not do check and balance with scriptures to see whether or not what was being communicated was being communicated accurately. Well, Dr. Sproul, who's with the Lord now, helps us in this regard. So look at the next table that comes before you. This could help us to understand somewhat what Luther was facing and what, what we deal with day in, day out. Because when Luther was speaking to the people, um, their idea of justification would have been this. Faith plus works results in justification. In their formula, works are a necessary precondition for justification. But along comes Luther, and Luther says, but the Bible says, now remember, it's scriptura sola, scripture alone. And so all the reformation, and praise God, the Gutenberg press preceded it, so now Bibles could be printed. In the biblical view, faith leads to justification and out of justification, where we're declared righteous by God, come our works, whereby which our works are observed by others and bring glory to God. This simple diagram helps us to be able to better understand the significance of what we're doing. Because in the Reformation view, works are a necessary fruit of justification. And now what you've done through the tables being offered, through the Rolls Royce illustration being provided, and uh, through some ice skating escapades happening here, um, we've got our first phrase. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, but you've gone ahead of me and so I gotta catch up to you, you're on to the second phrase. We have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's begin to let's begin to break this down. Think this through. Develop this all the more to be able to understand still what it is that God wants to communicate because there's a blessing now that comes to you, comes to me as a result of being able to grasp the significance of all this because you start then the fact that we have peace with God. Harrison Ford, the actor, was being interviewed not long ago and asked, what is the one thing you still long to be able to achieve in life. He's got fame. He's got wealth. He's Indiana Jones par excellence. But he said, peace. I can't find peace. In order to experience peace within, you need peace from God. But in order to experience peace from God, there must first of all be peace with God. You see? Let me say it again. In order to experience peace from within, you're going to need peace from God. But to experience peace from God, there must first of all be peace with God. Now, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And I remember being on a taxi, and um, the taxi driver in, Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv, he turned on the music as we were making our way to the hotel. And I'm always fascinated, whether in Europe or in the Middle East or so on, what is, what's the music about? It gives me a lens into the culture. Song after song that was being provided had to do with peace. There's an extraordinary longing for shalom in the Middle East. Shalom, the Hebrew word used in the Older Testament, has to do with wholeness, which speaks to a world marked by brokenness. Who's going to put this brokenness back together again, you see? But what's interesting to me is that in the Bible, among other terms, our sovereign one is referred to as the God of Peace. Now, the God of peace, then, desires for you and me to be at peace with God so that we can experience peace from God so that we can then possess peace from within so we can then offer peace to others. You see the sequence unfolding here? It all fits together as you begin to think this through. The, he, the Greek word, hyrene, carries with it the idea, likewise, of this matter of completeness. But what we need to start with is this whole matter of peace with God. Where Do we have an illustration of it all? 
Robert Moffat is remembered one of the great pioneer missionaries in South Africa. Uh, he was born in Scotland, and one day in his teen years, while studying the Bible, he found assurance that he needed for salvation in Romans chapter 5 of verse 1. I felt that being justified by faith, I had peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, he would later share. Reading somewhat now from his biography. Secure in the knowledge of his salvation, Moffat sought out training for Christian ministry uh, through the London Missionary Society and then headed off to South Africa, desiring permission to travel north to bring the gospel to unreached tribes, but he was confronting one roadblock after another. The governor was suspicious that missionaries were secretly aiding runaway slaves. So finally, getting permission... Moffat and two other missionaries headed into the vast territory that was ruled by the fearsome African chief, Africana, who for years had terrorized the Dutch settlers approaching his land. But the biographer tells us that before Moffat began the journey, stories circulated that Africana had come to saving faith in Christ. Now, none of the Dutch settlers believed it, they thought for certain that he was going to kill that the, uh, he was going to kill them, but when Moffat met Africana face to face, we are told he knew immediately that he had truly put faith and trust in Jesus Christ because the peace of Christ was evident on his face, in his eyes, in his life. Moffat invited the chief then to return to Cape Town with him to demonstrate the power of the gospel. But Africana trembled at the thought he'd be easy target for settlers wanting revenge. But finally, he was persuaded to come, disguised as Moffat's servant. And as they passed through villager, villages, settlers were shocked to see Moffat. They thought for sure he was going to be killed by Africana. Little did they know that the chief was standing next to him. And in Cape Town, Afrikaner's testimony made a powerful impact upon the officials. Many came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Struck by the peace he exuded in his relationship with God. Now, the God of peace longs for us to experience peace with God. This happens when you are justified by faith, which leads to peace from God, which leads to peace within, which leads to peace without, where you are now bringing others along for the ride, and they're beginning to sense ah. This is how peace is experienced. You've got shalom in your life. This happens through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all that being said, you've just covered one verse. The third phrase comes out of the beginning of verse 2. Through him. 
we also have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, the reader at this point then would have been struck with the fact that you can have access to God. In the days of Luther, they thought they had to gain access by going through uh, whatever particular religious rituals were necessary. And of course, the Pope would have served as the intermediary. But now that the Gutenberg Press is in full operation and Bibles are being distributed and now people can read Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 and they could also read the gospel accounts where they would find out that the curtain of the temple was torn in two, they would begin to learn that the curtain was the most significant of the 13 curtains in the temple in Jerusalem woven with expensive yarns from Babylon. Its function was to block all eyes and keep people from accessing the Holy of Holies, except once a year when the high priest entered with shed blood. But now, because of Christ's work, the great curtain, as thick as my hand, was slashed in two as if this great sword had sliced it top to bottom. And now the writer of Hebrews would say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, hear all the throughs? And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And you're astounded by that fact. And you're saying, how can this be? You're accessing, according to this third phrase, by faith, not faith in faith, not faith in our works, but rather Christ, his finished work, into this grace in which we stand. And now you look at this pulpit that's displayed on the screen because this was John Calvin's pulpit. And it was here in, in Europe where grace was being taught in the richness and the development of God's word. And as you begin to grasp the significance of this, that this is faith in Christ, not faith in self, what you need to be able to say to those that are grappling with this whole matter of good nature or good works is that those who might, I might call secular unbelievers are captured by the idea that I'm a pretty good guy, God grates on a curve, I'm a pretty good woman, God will bend the curve where needed because you're a loving God, you see. But he is a holy, loving God. And what we have to understand when we're dealing with grace, it's an, as if then such people were thinking that way. Or they are saying, in essence, I'm, I'm good enough, so what Christ did on the cross was unnecessary. That's the secular unbelievers implied thought process. But what about the religious unbeliever? The one who does faith plus works, assuming that leads to justification. 
No, they're not saying that what Christ did on the cross was unnecessary. What they are saying is that what Christ did on the cross was insufficient. He needs my works added to his work so that then I am justified before God. And God says, no. Back to the, back to the solas, you see. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, where one can neither add to nor can one subtract from what it is that God has done. And the secularist might say, so unnecessary, I'm pretty good. The religionist might say, so insufficient, my works need to be added. What the religious unbeliever and secular unbeliever have to deal with and what they find in common is this distorted view of goodness and good nature on one hand, good works on the other hand, and what Christ is saying, there is none good. No, not one, as Paul would have put it. What must one do? One must put their faith and trust in the one who is completely good, Jesus, who died in our place for our sins. Once you've grasped the significance of this and understand our society and the viewpoints of unnecessary and the viewpoints of insufficient, you can make your way through the maze of confusion that's out there, which leads us to the fourth and the final phrase that we find here. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. People who are confused by the maze of life, they need to be amazed by grace in life. This is a means and a matter of rejoicing, even when joy is something foreign to their experience. Lloyd Ogilvie was senior pastor at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. His wife had gone through five major surgeries, radiation treatment, chemotherapy, and so on. And he wrote, prayer was no longer a contemplative luxury. It was our way of to survive. My own prayers, intercession, multiplied by the prayers of others. Friendships, fellowship deepened as I was forced to allow other people to assure me with words that I had taught from the pulpit for many years. No day went by without a conversation, communication, phone calls, giving me love and hope. And the greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of the difficulties he wrote that I, is that I can have joy when I don't feel like it. And then he adds and underlines, artesian joy yeah, I love it because when I, we live our family lived in New England we had an artesian well and the water jets kept coming and coming and coming and when other people were looking for water we had an artesian well they could come and drink the supply was there for you see, even when your externals shout no joy to be found, your internal is such that the joy is being shouted. And you're able then, no matter what the issues are of the, any given hour, to be able to express this joy, this peace that comes in this grace because you understand it's Christ alone, it's grace alone, it's faith alone, it's scripture alone, it's to God 
and God's glory alone, the five solos. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, which leads me then, when you think of one who is rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, to this image that appears on the screen from, from Prague in the Czech Republic, where a youngest son and, and daughter-in-law, Ben Jessica, were traveling. And in Prague, there is the statue of Jan Hus, who had been reading the thoughts of Wycliffe. And before Luther appeared on the scene, so committed was he to scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that he was able to withstand all the challenges, the extremes of life where he, because he was articulating such, was burned at the stake, and as the flames engulfed him, Jon Hus began to sing, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. An extraordinary impact began to take place in Europe in light of this, which paved the way then because of the press that allowed for such writings to begin to be distributed, for Luther in turn to begin to communicate. And now what you've got is a bona fide understanding of what it means to be justified by faith alone. And it's for God and the glory of God alone. And he gets all the praise. Let's stand together. Four phrases out of just two verses. You are, you are extraordinary in what you pack into such short amounts of space, Father. We have invested time to understand better the significance of this day, how these truths needed to be communicated then and now and in the tomorrows of our lives. But practically speaking, for the prior gathering in this building, this current one, for all those watching online right now, and they feel so stressed from within, the God of peace is such that we need to experience peace with God because we are sinful by nature but it is established at the cross. When we put faith and trust in Christ alone, faith alone, we experience then the peace from God, leading to peace within, communicating peace to others. And this amazing chain effect begins to occur and Father, it has impact. So for each one now, may we take these two verses, apply them in very powerful ways to our own life circumstances, communicate the good news of Jesus to all around us, and we will give you all the praise, you alone, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.